Hello, and welcome again to the Expanding Eyes podcast. Today, we begin the actual text of Milton's Paradise Lost. Last week, I spent time giving us some background context to the epic, but today I decided we would start in the way that epics are supposed to start themselves. The Roman poet Horace, around the time of Virgil, gave us the famous Latin phrase that epics don't begin at the beginning. They plunge the reader in medias race, into the middle of things, and then fill in the backstory as they go along. My version of that here will be to plunge into the text of Paradise Lost and fill in some necessary and deepening background information as we move along. I'll only today say as a preliminary that it will increase the impact if we at least pause for a moment here to remind ourselves of when Milton wrote this epic and published it. Paradise Lost was first published in 1667 in 10 books, highly unconventional because the standard number of books for an epic based on Virgil's Aeneid was 12 books. He then apparently reneged, and when the poem was republished in 1674, which is also the year he died, it was in the traditional 12 books, but there was no additional material. All Milton did in that second edition was to split two books that were already among the longest books in half and wrote a three or four line introduction to the second part of each one when it became an independent book. So there is virtually no new material, simply a reorganization. 1674, he had already published in 1671, combined in a single volume, the other two major poems of his latter career, Paradise Regained, which is what he called a brief epic, and his tragic drama, Samson Agonistes. All this since the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. And that is my reason for mentioning it here at the outset. Milton had contemplated ambitious and with a powerful sense of vocation, had contemplated writing something that in a prose pamphlet in 1642 called The Reason of Church Government, he spoke of leaving something so written into aftertimes as they should not willingly let it die. And also of writing a poem that would be doctrinal and exemplary to a nation. And initially, it was postponed because he felt that he was not old enough, not mature enough yet. 
But just when he might have been on the verge of that, the English Civil War broke out in 1640, and Milton wrote no more poetry for 20 years because he was totally taken up, serving the cause first of the revolution and then of the Puritan government for 20 years, 1640 to 1660, under Oliver Cromwell. He became what was called Cromwell's Latin secretary, writing things in Latin as explanations and basically propaganda to justify the Puritan cause, devoting himself for 20 years to this, wrote reams of prose, but no poetry, until finally it all failed in 1660. Cromwell died. The Puritan government had proved itself eminently incapable of governing. It was deadlocked by factionalism. And there was really nothing to be done except to return to the monarchy in 1660. Milton, by that time, was blind. He was on the verge of old age. And then he was thrown briefly into prison as a member of the, as they saw it, traitorous enemy. And luckily escaped execution because friends went on his behalf, one of them, in fact, the metaphysical poet, Andrew Marvell, and pleaded that this was an old man, this was a blind man, it could do no harm simply to let him retire quietly into private life, and they did. He was old, he was blind, the cause to which he had devoted 20 years had failed, and not only failed, but was betrayed in his mind by the very people on whose behalf the revolution had been fought. In a bitter line of a prose pamphlet, Milton said that the English people had chosen a captain back for Egypt, as if the Israelites had chosen to go back into slavery in Egypt. Everything about his life was a ruin and yet out of that ruin came these three great poems. It is extraordinary. And keeping that in mind, because all of those things will eventually emerge in the course of our discussion of the poem. They are in there, but they are implicit and emerge into something explicit only occasionally. And we will return to some of these things as we go along. But let's actually look at the opening of the first book of Paradise Lost. It is in the form of a classical epic, which is of course a question right there. What is a Christian poet doing writing a pagan style epic? We have encountered that before with Dante and seen the way he saw it. But here we have an epic that actually follows classical conventions far more than the Divine Comedy does, down to the actual epic mechanics and machinery, starting with, as we know, we know all about epics by this point in the con podcast, we know that the first thing that happens in a classical epic is an invocation to the muse. 
that here, as with Dante, has to be transvalued. A pagan goddess cannot be inspiring a Christian poet. The Christian poet does not even believe in the existence of the pagan goddess. Nonetheless, he even later in the poem gives the muse a name, Urania, and immediately adds, the, I mean the meaning, not the name. The name is misleading. I only intend the meaning. And the only way to interpret that, as we can see when we read the opening invocation of Book One, is that this is a merely not literal but symbolic invocation of a muse, even if it has a classical name attached to it later on. It is clearly the only possible source of inspiration for a Christian poet, and that is some aspect of God some infusion of divine revelation. Let me read you that invocation. It's much longer than a classical invocation would be. In Homer, as we know, all we get is sing muse and then a two or three line description of what the poet wants the muse to sing about. Milton goes much further than that. This opening invocation, which is very famous, goes on for 25 lines. I would like to read it in its entirety to you for several different reasons. One of them, as I said last time, is something we should not lose track of in trying to first follow the plot and then talk about themes and meanings and that is the musicality of the poem. I will do a fair amount of reading from the text in order to bring out, not that I claim to be the most ideal reader in the world. We could do with Dylan Thomas, for example, who actually did record some speeches from Paradise Lost at one point, and I am not there Nevertheless, I will do my best and bring out the sound. And also, I find that it becomes easier to understand Milton's long-involved syntax if you can hear it, especially hear it read with a sense of what it actually means instead of just intoning. So let me do my best at reading you the famous invocation, the very first lines of Paradise Lost. Of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe with loss of Eden till one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. Sing, heavenly muse, that on the secret top of Oreb or of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed. In the beginning, how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. 
or if Sion Hill delight thee more, and Siloah's brook that flowed fast by the grace of by the oracle of God, I thence invoke thy aid to my adventurous song. That with no middle flight intends to soar above the Ionian mount, while it pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And chiefly thou, O Spirit, that dost prefer before all temples the upright heart and pure, instruct me, for thou knowest, thou from the first wast present, and with mighty wings outspread, dove-like satst brooding on the vast abyss, and madest it pregnant. What in me is dark, illumine. What is low, raise and support. That to the height of this great argument, I may assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. A famous passage with some famous lines, particularly that final one. The purpose is to justify the ways of God to men. And we will try to ask ourselves at the end of the poem, in what way Milton has tried to do that and how satisfying the answer might be for us. But I'd like to begin with another often quoted line, this poem pursues things unattempted yet in prose or rhyme. And what are those? Well, it's a Christian epic, but of course that's not unattempted. Dante attempted it. And to quickly give Milton's response to that, doesn't count. First, he was Catholic and of no value in terms of interpreting Christian truth. Second, he was Italian, and this is an English epic, not because it ever mentions England, which, after all, doesn't even exist when the events of the poem transpire, but because it is intended for the English with the English in mind as those who could have been, who should have been, a new chosen people and who had just blown it. Well, what about Spencer? The Fairy Queen is an epic. It is Christian. It is Protestant. It is English. But it's Arthurian. And just briefly, Milton did contemplate when he was younger, before the intervention of the 20 years of his government service, had contemplated possibly writing on Arthurian themes. But although this is conjectural, we don't have Milton's word for it, we can probably infer at least two reasons that Milton gave up that plan, though he actually mentions it as an intention in a couple of his earlier works. Why not King Arthur? Because that would be the expectable material 
for a British epic. But first Spencer had already been there, which isn't to say that Milton couldn't have done something differently with the same material. But second of all, the Arthurian saga had been more or less kidnapped and taken over by the monarchy with the Tudor establishment back in the Elizabethan era. The Tudors had Welsh connections that they used for propaganda purposes to claim that they went back to the line of Arthur. And this was a poet who had just gotten done helping to depose the monarchy. So that really wouldn't do. And so finally, he ends up dramatizing the story of the fall of Adam and Eve. And as I often do when I teach, I like to set up questions for the group that we can think about as we go along the line because we have to gather evidence first, we have to process and think about it first, but always ask the big dumb questions and see where you get. And one of those here is the story of the fall of humanity in the book of Genesis takes up about three or four pages. Do we really need a 12-book epic to recount that same story? What's going on here with this enormous expansion? That's one thing for us to keep in mind. If we return to the invocation itself and that business of things unattempted yet and ask, well, what is being given to us here through this inspiring muse? The muse is clearly a reference to God. The wording of it that on the secret top of Orabor of Sinai didst inspire that shepherd who first taught the chosen seed. That shepherd is Moses. Oreb and Sinai are the alternative names in the Exodus story for the sacred mountain on top of which God gave the law to Moses. That section of Genesis is composite. There are multiple authors, and at times the mountain is said to be Horeb, and at times Sinai. So Milton includes them both. And on top of that mountain, the shepherd was inspired by the story of how in the beginning, how the heavens and earth rose out of chaos. Contrary to popular Hollywood movie versions, Moses was up on top of that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and God did not need that long to inscribe a couple of stone tablets with Ten Commandments and send Moses back down again. What Moses received up there was the whole of the law, or in Jewish terms, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah in Jewish tradition, 
and brought all of that down, which would have included, therefore, the story of the beginning, how heavens and earth rose out of chaos, later going on to the fall of Adam and Eve. And this will be a greater story, flying above the Aeonian Mount where the Muses hung out. And this spirit, referred to as thou, O spirit, thou from the first was present, you were there, and with wings outspread over the vast abyss, a reference to the Spirit of God in the very opening verses of Genesis, moving in the darkness upon the face of the waters, the, and madest it pregnant, wonderful metaphorical word choice. What is dark in me illumine, from dark to light. And of course, the creation was the story in which God's first act was to say, let there be light. And this is a blind poet. Another thing for us to think about is the way Milton conceived of God, both in Paradise Lost and elsewhere. He is to perhaps get ahead of ourselves a little, but to again set things up to think about. He is perhaps at his weakest in dramatizing God in the traditional way as the patriarch sitting on the throne giving speeches, which God the Father does in Book Three of Paradise Lost, and I am far from being the only reader who thinks that that moment is Milton at his weakest, where he is the least successful at justifying the ways of God to men. He is, in my feeling, at his strongest in thinking of God the way I think Milton most profoundly thought of God, and that is he belonged to the inner light tradition of Protestantism. God is within rather than without. It is the light in the darkness, and the very literal darkness it was for a man who was dictating this poem to his daughters because he was blind. Astounding feat to compose and dictate this poem while blind. Evoking Homer, of course, the legend of Homer's blindness, which Milton is, of course, aware of and will mention in his own regard later on. But nevertheless, this moving plea, what is dark in me illumine, what is low, raise and support. And the poem plunges into the narrative, and the narrative itself is in medias race. It plunges us into the middle of things, and it may be helpful if I straighten out the chronology briefly in an explanation at the beginning so that when people go on to read, they will understand what is happening here. In terms of the chronological events that Paradise Lost covers, it 
begins as Genesis begins with the creation of the world, but that's not the first event that actually takes place. We learn that there is the revolt of the rebel angels that happened before that. So that Paradise Lost differs from the Bible in having a whole huge cataclysmic event, the revolt of Satan and the rebel angels occurring before the creation of the world. That was traditional, but it was not biblical. The idea that Satan rebelled against God and drew one-third of the heavenly host, that figure is drawn from a cryptic passage in the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible, what is not cryptic in the book of Revelation, but a reference to a third of the heavenly host who fought a war, good angels versus bad angels. The bad angels lost and were thrown out of heaven into hell that was apparently waiting to receive them. As Paradise Lost opens, however, that has already happened so that the first events that we hear about in Paradise Lost begin in hell. We begin the poem at the furthest possible remove from heaven in the darkness of hell. And before that has been the war in heaven. That is not in the Bible, but it was commonly accepted by, I believe, most Christians as part of tradition. It occurs insofar as it's described in a non-canonical book, a book that did not make it into the canonical Bible called the First Book of Enoch. First, because there were other variants of the Book of Enoch, but the First Book of Enoch does did provide for Christian tradition the story of the revolt of bad angels who became the devils, turned into the devils. And that was incorporated, as I say, though it is technically extra-biblical. Before that, questions nobody ever asks. I say this in passing in my book, Productions of Time. But where did heaven and presumably hell come from? Where did the angels, for that matter, come from? At no point in the Bible does it show God or speak of God as creating heaven and the angels. And are we to assume that heaven existed from all eternity? Tradition does not say. The angels presumably came into being at some point and were not co-eternal with God, but the Bible, one of the many things in which the Bible is silent. So the actual chronological first events of Paradise Lost are the revolt of 
Satan and the rebel angels, the war in heaven, the plunge into hell. And then, as a counterbalancing act, and we will talk more of the nature of that later, God announces that he is going to embark upon a second creation, and that is the creation of the world and ultimately of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. The poem tells this, as I say, completely out of order. We start in the aftermath, in hell, the lost war, and Satan and the rebel angels, stunned but slowly coming back to consciousness and gathering themselves together. Then we travel in book three from the darkness all the way up to the dazzling light of heaven and have a colloquy between God the Father and the Son of God with the angels there, the good angels remaining there. Then we come down to the earth, to the Garden of Eden in books four and five and get our first look at Adam and Eve. Then it's only in book six, halfway through Paradise Lost, that we actually see the war in heaven that has just finished as we open book one. Book seven is the creation of the world recounted. The chronology is totally out of whack. Recounted as a past event by an angel to Adam, but it has already obviously happened since they're standing in the Garden of Eden. That conversation continues into book eight, and only in book nine is the fall of Adam and Eve, and the rest is aftermath. So from the war in heaven to the creation of the world to Adam and Eve, to the fall. But we don't begin that way. It is not as confusing when you actually read it as it tends to be in the explanation of it. You'll be happy to know. Nor is it really, if you think about it, any more complicated than the scheme of the Odyssey, which I think may have influenced it. The Odyssey is also the entire first half of the Odyssey told out of order. We are used to that kind of juggling with time more, I think, these days with novels and films, but nevertheless, that's what's going on. So when we open book one, we open it in what in a famous line, line 64, is referred to as darkness visible. Just as a quick, I cannot afford too many asides of this sort, but to show how deeply these things are embedded, even now, even in what some people feel is a postmodern, post-Christian, post-religious culture, these things are embedded in some of our best writers, at least, and a lot of other people as well, that phrase, that striking oxymoronic phrase, darkness visible. 
was the title some decades back of the nonfiction account by the famous American novelist William Styron talking about his bout, his lifelong bout, with clinical depression. What a totally appropriate title that made, having nothing to do with anybody's religious commitment. But we open in hell. And the narrator speaks of the impious war in heaven that has just occurred, battle proud with vain attempt. Him, the almighty power, hurled headlong flaming from the ethereal sky. And there, again, I can't resist some asides, but do promise not to do it so often as to become distracting or annoying. But that is a great example of what Milton can do with the musicality of the verse. The verse is blank verse, unrhymed iambic pentameter. And that was a itself an unconventional and radical choice. I skipped over it, but you may want, if you are reading Paradise Lost, to look briefly at a note appended to the poem at the beginning called The Verse, in which he argues for blank verse, verse without stanzas in rhyme, and he argues for it on musical grounds. He says that we already know from our best English tragedies, in other words, from Shakespeare and the other theatrical poets of the Elizabethan period who wrote their plays in blank verse, we already know for them, from them that this is the best way to write poetry, not in the jingling sound of like endings. Milton is rejecting rhyme. This is disingenuous in several different ways. First of all, Milton himself wrote any number of his earlier poems in rhymed and stanzaic form. Second, poets that he clearly and explicitly admired, like Spencer, wrote in rhymed and stanzaic verse. But he even builds this in terms of one of the deepest themes, a theme that we will have to recur to over and over in the poem, the theme of liberty. This is a revolutionary poet who revolted against the government in the name of liberty. And in the little note on the verse before Paradise Lost, he speaks of this as an ancient liberty recovered to a heroic poem from the troublesome and modern bondage of rhyming. So even writing in blank verse is the recovering of a kind of liberty. As I say, he's not really very logically consistent about that, but so it is. But to return that to that line, the almighty power hurled headlong flaming Satan and the other angels. He varies the verse, the sound following the sense three powerfully strong beats in a row with alliteration 
to intensify them even further to get the effect across of Satan flung like a meteor from high to low. And now Satan and all the rebel angels lie on the floor of hell. Actually, they lie in a flaming lake in the darkness visible. Satan is the first to awaken, and once he gets done being stunned, he awakens his right-hand man and speaks to him, and we open with the actual action of the poem. Paradise Lost, something I have not said to this point, began as a sketch for a tragic drama, clear back before the Civil War. We actually, in a notebook called the Trinity Manuscript, we actually have his notes for this. And let me stress, and I will do this much more next time when we get into dramatic speeches and actions, how intensely dramatic this poem is. The example of Shakespeare went profoundly deep in Milton. And the first voice in the poem is Satan's, and we will take up there next time.